Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Rob, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop, Lobular Breast Cancer Treatment Progress. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and made possible through an independent grant from Merck and Company, Inc. I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have a lot of people on the call today. There's over 325 participants on the call. They're primarily from the United States. But I am going to mention we have a number of international countries listening, and I think it might be of interest to all of you to hear who they are. So we have participants from Australia, Canada, Colombia, Egypt, Germany, Kuwait, Nepal, Norway, Portugal, Thailand, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call, and it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Rebecca Shosky, medical oncologist, associate professor of medicine, UC San Diego Health. And Dr. Shosky will be presenting an overview of lobular breast cancer and also be discussing with you genetic testing. It's my pleasure to, to present to you my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shotsky. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, so I'm happy to speak to you all today. Um, lobular breast cancer treatment um, and diagnosis is a passion of mine, so I'm, I'm really, really excited to participate today. Um, you know, I, I think we should probably start with an overview of, of what is lobular breast cancer. And so lobular breast cancer is a subtype. It's the second most common type of breast cancer when you look under the microscope and you look at what's called the histology report. And the histology of breast cancer is what we see under the microscope that makes up sort of the structure of the cancer cells that we see. Um, the lobular breast cancer cells tend to develop in the lobules of the breast, which are the milk-producing um, cells of the breast, um, as opposed to ductal, which is the most common type of breast cancer that uh, develops from the ducts of the breast. Because breast cancer is so common, lobular breast cancer is still a very common entity in um, the world because it's still 10 to 15 percent of breast cancer cases. So that's, you know, around 44,000 people in the U.S. a year diagnosed with this disease. Um, the important features when you look at your pathology report, uh, that when you have a biopsy and they tell you that it's cancer, and if they tell you that it's lobular breast cancer, so the majority of these breast cancers are expressive of the hormone estrogen. Uh, over 98% of cases will be positive for the hormone estrogen, and some of them progesterone as well, although the progesterone expression is a bit less important as far as treatment and prognosis is concerned. Um, the majority, the vast majority are going to be negative for the protein HER2, which is a sort of a protein that can be expressed in some cancer cells and can be associated with very aggressive growth. 
So the vast majority um, are going to be negative for that. There's only 2% of lobular breast cancers that are positive for HER2. Um, and so, like I said, the majority, the vast majority are estrogen positive, which means that only 1 or 2% are going to be triple negative lobular breast cancers. That's a very rare subtype of lobular breast cancer, but it does occasionally happen, and it, its treatment differs quite a bit from estrogen positive breast cancer. So, um, when you look at a pathology report for breast cancer, the things you want to focus on are whether it's ductal versus lobular, and it should say that on the pathology report. It will also usually say invasive or infiltrating carcinoma. Sometimes it'll say mammary carcinoma, and mammary is another word that just means breast, so that's not really of great significance, whether it says mammary or it says breast. Um, and the infiltrating or invasive is to distinguish it from non-invasive cancers. So non-invasive um, breast cancer is considered ductal carcinoma in situ, DCIS. And then a precancer variant of, of breast cancer that's lobular is called um, lobular carcinoma in situ, which is not considered cancer at all, but is does raise your risk of future breast cancer. Um, and so when you have been diagnosed with invasive cancer, you also get a grade generally, either on a biopsy or a surgical report, and that will be um, one of three things. It'll be grade one, grade two, or grade three. Grade, the grade of the cancer is when we look under the microscope, what we see and how kind of similar to a normal breast lobular duct or duct, the, the cancer looks or, or different. So when it's grade one, it tends to be very similar to a normal uh, non-cancerous lobular duct. And when it's grade two, it's sort of intermediate, intermediate, meaning we can tell where it came from, but you can tell very, very much that it's different and that it's cancer. And then when it's grade three, it's very, very, uh, sort of mutated, it looks very different from a normal lobular duct or duct, and it's hard sometimes to even tell where the cancer cell originated. In breast, in lobular breast cancer, the vast majority are going to be low grade, which is considered grade one or grade two, but occasionally we do get some that are grade three, and sometimes you'll see the word pleomorphic associated with that. Aggressive variant lobular breast cancer, we call pleomorphic lobular carcinoma, and that does tend to be grade three. That's also associated potentially with lower expression of estrogen, because another thing you'll see on your pathology report is you'll not just say that it's, it, it won't just say that it's estrogen positive or negative, you'll have two things associated with the report. So one, is um, the strength of this staining. So it'll say one plus, two plus, or three plus often. And that means that when we stain the cells for estrogen under the microscope, it's highly dark. And if it's three plus, it's sort of medium darkness. If it's two plus and it's weak, weak staining, it's, it's very barely staining if it's one plus. You'll also have a percentage of the cells that stain for estrogen. 
Many lobular breast cancers are greater than 90% estrogen positive. And so that really um, leads to kind of uh, high estrogen expression and, and um, good outcomes as well, good, good responses as far as um, estrogen therapy, uh, anti-estrogen therapy being the dominant treatment option in early stage for this disease and sometimes in advanced stage as well. Um, so those are, those are really the primary features you want to look at. I mean, it's always very important that you know that your cancer is either estrogen positive or negative, progesterone positive or negative, although, again, progesterone is less important than estrogen when it comes to treatment, and then HER2 positive or negative, with the vast majority of these being HER2 negative. Um, so those are um, important features of your pathology report, and I encourage you all to look very closely at your pathology report, to go over it with your medical oncologist, and highlight the features that they consider important in your diagnosis. The second thing I wanted to talk about today is genetic testing, because um, there's kind of two ways that I can talk about genetic testing. One is to, when we generally speak about this, what we mean is to, to, to test if see if this cancer was something that was passed through your family and has potentially a risk to your children or family members that they could be at risk for breast cancer as well. And so you may have heard of things like the BRCA1 and 2 gene. And those are things that we test for. But now in patients who qualify, we do very large panels of germline testing to look for all genes associated with breast cancer. And so often there's more than 25 different genes tested. The specific gene that is associated with inherited lobular breast cancer is quite rare, actually. It's called CDH1. And it's associated not only with lobular breast cancer, but also with a familial form of gastric cancer. Again, this, this gene um, mutation is very, very rare. So having lobular breast cancer doesn't necessarily mean that you um, will test positive for an inherited form of lobular breast cancer because that's very rare genetic syndrome. And it's it's likely that there'd be someone in your family with a history of gastric cancer at a very young age if you were to have that. But that's not to say that patients with lobular breast cancer can't test positive for things like BRCA1 and 2. BRCA1 tends to be unusual for patients with lobular breast cancer, but BRCA2, I have quite a few patients who are positive for the BRCA2 gene that have lobular breast cancer. So that's more common. There's also genes like LB2, CHECK2, um, ATM, and so those are all associated with breast cancers, and they can be either lobular. Um, as far as genetic testing guidelines go, right now, anybody who's diagnosed with breast cancer on the age of 50, update for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guideline, um, which I'm part of that panel. And so it used to be that patients diagnosed at age 45 or below were qualified, but if you were diagnosed at the age of 50 or below, then you qualify. Also, if you have a history of multiple family members on the same side of the family with either breast cancer, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, or ovarian cancer, then you will qualify for genetic testing. 
anyone who has a history of triple negative breast cancer qualifies for insurance cover coverage for genetic testing. Um, and anybody who has uh, metastatic disease. And the reasons are also because there are treatment options that are unique for patients who carry the BRCA1 or 2 gene. So we want to make sure that everyone, especially with advanced disease, metastatic disease, gets tested for BRCA1 and 2. But also, um, if you've had um, in locally advanced disease and got neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we want you to get tested as well because a class of drug called PARP inhibitors is now approved for patients who have uh, BRCA1 and 2. And so those are all important considerations. There is another con class of genetic testing. We call that next generation sequencing or som somatic testing. That is for primarily for patients with advanced metastatic breast cancer. And so that looks at mutations in your tumor that could cause or forward cancer growth. It's not usually um, as relevant to patients with stage one through three disease, but if you have stage four breast cancer, that looks at gene, gene mutations in the cancer that are not necessarily inherited, that are gene mutations that are unique to your cancer and may afford different treatment options with advanced disease, but they're not the same as germline genetic testing that is focusing on inherited mutations. Okay, so um, after that, I'm going to pass over the baton to my uh, colleagues so that they can speak about additional topics because I think I have used up my time. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Shatsky. That was a wonderful presentation, very comprehensive, and actually a wonderful introduction to this program today. So thank you. I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Wade Smith. Dr. Smith is breast cancer specialist, assistant clinical professor, Department of Medical Oncology and Therapeutics Research, City of Hope, Newport Beach, California. And Dr. Smith will be addressing an overview of lobular breast cancer in situ, LCIS, and invasive lobular breast cancer, including surgery. Understanding your pathology report for lobular breast cancer in situ, LCIS, and invasive lobular breast cancer. Biomarkers that are diagnostic testing, and technologies, why they are important in informing treatment decisions for LCIS, invasive lobular breast cancer, and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I'm happy to be on Cancer Care. And again, um, I'm Dr. Wade Smith, and uh, I'll be following up kind of what Dr. Shapsky had very eloquently laid out in terms of just the overview. Um, as mentioned, I'll be covering these topics. Um, you know, there's there's some overlap, and um, I found that you know as soon as I um, was offered this and had kind of um, broadcasted my involvement on this, I received a lot of patient questions that just happened to kind of fall within the categories of what I was asked to talk about. So I'm going to kind of present this in in as much um, a, kind of a lead into the question and answer as possible, kind of uh, highlighting some of the questions I was asked and how that. Kind of plays into current standard of care, new treatment approaches, um, as well as, you know, we can talk about um, preventing and managing side effects, as well as uh, what we call lobular neoplasia, which is really the, the pre-cancer, the pre-invasive manifestation of um, lobular cancer. So, um, you know, to begin with, you know, lobular cancers, as mentioned, 5 to 10% of patients that present to us have a lobular cancer. 
And again, they're identified, these cancers are identified by how they appear under the microscope. These cancer cells arrange themselves in a way that mimic the lobular, the lobule of the breast that produces milk as opposed to the duct that transports the milk out through the nipple. So um, by convention, we call it lobular. We've also over time and through research have discovered that they do behave different. And at the molecular level, we do see differences as well. So, you know, what can be said, we, they tend to occur more often in older patients. They tend to be a little bit more what we call well-differentiated, meaning these are very mature appearing cancer cells that tend not to divide as quickly. They tend to be estrogen sensitive or estrogen receptor positive. And um, they, you know, some studies suggest they may have a better prognosis, at least within the short term but we conventionally consider them to be a little bit more of this, the sneaky variant of breast cancer. When they do come back, we tend to see them come back, you know, beyond year 10 from time of surgery. So that does play into how we monitor with respect to uh, even surveillance in the survivorship period after treatment. And so, um, so basically um, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, both early stage, you know, as well as, you know, metastatic, we treat metastatic as well. Um, because there, there's just some shared correlation between them. When these cancers come back, they tend to come back in a certain specific way. We tend to see it more often come back in, in for instance, the abdominal cavity, sometimes as well the area around the brain called the meninges. So um, I'm just going to jump right into kind of some of the questions I've received. And, um, you know, one question was having to do with Oncotype DX testing. And is this accurate in assessing the risk of recurrence in a lobular cancer? Which is really a good question for patients with early stage breast cancer who um, are often having their tumor sent out for Oncotype DX testing. And again, what that is, is we look at 21 genes and we're looking for a gene expression pattern that would suggest that this is a higher risk cancer of coming back metastatic in the future. And the validation largely does not differentiate between lobular and the more common ductal variant that we see. And so a lot of questions are now being asked, is, is the Oncotype DX test reflective? And the short answer is we don't know. We just have some, um, some preliminary study data that shows that, you know, perhaps it's not as reflective as we felt. And that's always a caveat. And, you know, for certain, this is still the standard of care. For, for lobular cancers, oncologists, we are still sending these tumors that otherwise qualify for testing um, where we feel appropriate to determine, you know, if this patient specifically is going to need chemotherapy, because that's what Oncotype DX really asks. Is this patient at high enough risk they're going to need chemotherapy? And that gets into the question of, of class of lobular cancers. And that, you know, what we know about lobular cancers is the majority of them probably don't respond as well to chemotherapy as we would hope. And, um, and that, within some limited studies, has shown to be probably the case with Oncotype DX as well. Oncotype DX is a test that tells us whether chemotherapy is likely going to be a benefit. It also gives us an idea how high risk the tumor is, how likely it is to recur in the future. And, and there is enough question raised as to how, how effective that is. So, in the meantime, we're still looking to answer that question. In the meantime, we're still ordering the Oncotype test. But I think, um, you know, certainly how, how does that impact, um, you know, how we give chemotherapy or whether we give chemotherapy, that's going to be very specific to the oncologist. 
I'll then jump on to the next question. Um, is treatment different for different types of lobular cancers? And that kind of plays into the fact that within invasive lobular cancer, which again is only 5 to 10 percent of all lobular, of all breast cancers, you know, we see a variant called classic, which is 60 percent. We see another variant called pleomorphic, which is about 13 percent. And there's some other rarer subtypes of lobular cancer as well. So when we talk about lobular cancer, we're largely talking about classic. And again, this is um, just as I've described before, it tends to behave in a certain way. Um, it, you know, we, we have questions as to how beneficial chemotherapy is. That is compared to pleomorphic. And pleomorphic tends to be higher grade, a faster growing, a more, overall more aggressive cancer that seems to have some more stronger correlation, for instance, with the oncotype DX test coming back high risk. So, so certainly um, pleomorphic does impact for the way a lot of us treat. For instance, I'm very hesitant to give chemotherapy up front before surgery in order to shrink a tumor down in order to help obtain clear margins, um, you know, at time of surgery because we know that from studies, tumors, these, these classic lobular cancers don't tend to shrink under the influence of chemotherapy, as does ductal um, or as does the pleomorphic lobular. So I, many of us will, when we see a pleomorphic lobular cancer, consider upfront chemotherapy prior to surgery. So that is a way in which the pleomorphic variant does impact our decision making. I have another a general question I want to hit on. It just has to do with um, intrauterine device IUD. It's asking, um, should it be removed at time of breast cancer diagnosis? Well, as mentioned, these lobular cancers tend to be estrogen receptor positive. Uh, for IUDs that are containing progestins that, that do allow for a certain amount of absorption into the bloodstream, uh, we do advise patients to have them removed at time of diagnosis. So that is important if you have a, um, a hormone-containing IUD. I received another question. If a lobular cancer has an ER-positive status, what about PR negative? How does that affect response to treatment and prognosis? From that, we basically correlate it with what we know about PR or progesterone receptor negativity, um, which is that this does impact um, outcome. It does have more of an adverse um, influence on the risk of a cancer coming back. So we do tend to correlate this with a, a, more, a somewhat more aggressive breast cancer. And that may lead us more in the direction of, for instance, offering chemotherapy. A patient also asked, is disposition to lobular cancer more likely from, uh, from having a, a, a paternal or a paternal side of, of familial breast cancer? And I just, I ran across one study that showed that a patient's father is more likely to have been diagnosed with breast cancer if that patient is diagnosed with a lobular breast cancer. And I, I found that interesting. It's only about a two-fold increase, but that is, uh, I think, certainly something that could come up in discussion, how impactful that is, uncertain. Another question, for imaging follow-up in a patient with lobular, is mammogram adequate? Should we also be using ultrasound or MRI? And in brief, what can be said about the lobular cancers is they tend to be a little bit, they tend to present in a way that is more amorphous, that is uh, not so much a circumscribed tumor uh, that often can uh, be presenting in an occult manner, meaning not picked up on screening ultrasound and mammogram. So the, there is research looking into MRI, using MRI. And certainly 
Um, whereas it's not an absolute indication that all patients need an MRI, many of us and most of us will, will order an MRI, particularly for those patients that are at higher clinical risk, um, if we're concerned, perhaps based on, um, you know, uh, background family history or certainly with increased dense breasts. Um, so from, a, um, from an imaging standpoint, from a screening, you know, the question is, will we pick up more lobulars? In patients who we feel are at higher risk, that's a possibility. In patients um, who we are following after they have been treated, again, I, I basically confer with a surgeon. We make a decision based upon the overall uh, risk of recurrence. But MRI is a very important tool with respect to following uh, patients in the classic lobular cancer setting. So I was asked if I have a lobular breast cancer in one breast, am I a greater, greater chance of having it in the other breast, in the opposite breast. And what we do know about invasive lobular cancer is it's, um, it is more likely to present both multifocally, meaning multiple areas of the breast, as well as in both breasts. So, um, so certainly, um, you know, that, that, has, that does enter into our consideration. What we know, however, playing into the, the question of what is, what is the most effective surgery, there have been multiple studies that show that lumpectomy is still near equally effective in treating an uh, invasive lobular cancer as an invasive ductal. So lumpectomy, where, uh, where we can do a lumpectomy, where patients meet the criteria, that is still the, the preferred surgery, even with an invasive lobular cancer. You know, we see that uh, more often we, we see uh, positive margins by a, by a significant amount, but, not, uh, but upon re-excision, going in and removing that, that area of positive margin, we actually have a, a very high likelihood of obtaining negative margin. So for that reason, it, you know, lumpectomy is still um, the primary um, surgical choice for patients newly diagnosed invasive lobular cancer. So I've been asked, a patient with a uh, lobular cancer, um, a high-risk lobular cancer, should they be treated longer than 10 years? We don't really have data. Um, continuing treatment beyond 10 years? And that's an excellent question. Certainly, it's, a, it's an important research question um, because that all, all the talk is, you know, how long do we keep patients on endocrine therapy, be it an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen? And um, uh, there, there are studies showing benefit, particularly aromatase inhibitors, out to 10 years. And I would certainly argue that for um, a patient particularly at high risk with a lobular cancer. Um, but beyond 10 years, we really we don't have data that's really something to be kind of individually approached with the, the oncologist. So I've been asked, um, basically, um, do we skip chemotherapy in some of these lobulars? I get asked all the time, you know, it's a lobular, I hear it's not chemotherapy sensitive. Can we skip chemotherapy and go directly on to radiation therapy, go directly on to endocrine therapy? And I will argue that uh, chemotherapy is still standard of care uh, where where patients meet the criteria so we're not we're not at a point certainly of, of considering that but as mentioned it does enter into the decision making and you know there's data to show particularly getting back to the oncotype DX test you know which patients really um, benefit from um, you know chemotherapy if we're dealing with a young patient under 50 with a newly diagnosed lobular cancer, we also take into account other high-risk uh, features with regard to their presentation. 
and combine that with the fact that it's a known classic lobular breast cancer, and we individually make that decision. And so, um, you know, we talk about, uh, and I think Dr. Shafsky talked about the genomics, meaning uh, the cancer, the genes within the cancer cell, and, you know, what, what may make this different, uh, lobular cancers, compared to other types of breast cancer. And we do see that, you know, for instance, ESR1, which can confer resistance to endocrine therapy, uh, can be seen in 25% of newly diagnosed lobular cancers, and that's higher than less than 10% across the board. And so that may play into some of the more um, the, the concerns regarding endocrine therapy resistance that we see in lobular cancers over time. And we also see that um, there's also up to 50% can have mutations within the PI3 kinase pathway, which can certainly play into um, uh, design for future clinical trials and, and current clinical trials, in fact, because there are medicines that can be added that can um, hopefully um, you know, circumvent that resistance from occurring. I've been asked, um, you know, in addition, um, uh, is it, is it, uh, is AI better um, for patients with lobular breast cancer than tamoxifen? In the early, you know, adjuvant setting, meaning they've had curative surgery, is aromatase inhibitor better than tamoxifen? I mean, there's at least one study that suggests so, although it, it continues to ask for more, you know, follow-up validation. That's the big 198 study, and it basically showed that outcomes were better measurably with aromatase inhibitor over tamoxifen, you know, in the in the menopause setting. And so that is something that that you know we do factor in. We tend to lean towards aromatase inhibitors anyway. But uh, certainly for me, I use aromatase inhibitors almost, you know, routinely in my intermediate to high-risk breast cancer, certainly in the menopause setting that are classic lobular. Certainly getting onto the LCIS. So this is, again, lobular neoplasia. And so we've been talking about invasive lobular cancers, but the kind of, you know, the, the prelude to an invasive cancer is the non-invasive neoplasia. And so um, and, and we, within that category, we include atypical lobular hyperplasia, as well as lobular carcinoma in situ. And you can think of it as a, um, a continuum. And, uh, and when we see these high-risk lesions, and we do consider them to be high-risk lesions, that certainly can uh, impact how we monitor patients going forward, how we, how we monitor patients going forward, as well as how we may intervene. So, for instance, atypical lobular hyperplasia is going to increase a patient's future risk of an invasive lobular cancer or breast cancer of about a fourfold factor. Whereas LCIS, lobular carcinoma in situ, which is where we're actually seeing cancer cells that have not invaded, um, you know, beyond the structure of, of the, of the um, ductal unit, an eightfold increased risk. So these patients are at, you know, considerable increased risk of having a future breast cancer event. Um, and how that does impact, though, certainly um, it doesn't it, – it, these, are, these are lesions that do not need to be completely excised. So, you know, for instance, if you hear about a ductal carcinoma in situ, that is a lesion that needs to be completely excised, removed by the surgeon. If we do a biopsy and we see an LCIS, we don't typically need to remove that completely um, with certain exceptions. But having said that, these patients do need to be screened regularly. You know, we, oftentimes we will incorporate MRI, and oftentimes we will examine the patient every six months that, that carry a diagnosis of LCIS. So, so they need uh, much closer surveillance, and 
and many of us and myself included, due to that eightfold increased risk, we'll have a discussion about placing a patient on, for instance, tamoxifen um, or possibly an aromatase inhibitor as a prophylaxis, as preventing a breast cancer event uh, in the future. So, um, so certainly that plays a role. You know, within the LCIS, I should also mention, there are other higher risk uh, variants than just the classic, and that's the uh, pleomorphic LCIS, and there's also LCIS with necrosis. And these, these are typically um, considered to be much higher risk, and I do confer with the surgeon with respect to that with regard to, you know, optimal surgical management. Um, but the majority of LCIS we see is what's called classic. Um, and so, and then, you know, just kind of moving along to some of the other topics, um, tumor markers I don't tend to order. Patients ask routinely, you know, do, do I order a CA-153 or a CEA? I don't order them, you know, even in lobular cancers, I, I don't order them simply. And, and the guidelines would support me. We don't have data to show that it is effective in really impacting outcome. So, um, and then, um, and then basically, uh, you know, moving on a little bit, I will talk about, you know, um, you know, pain and supportive care. I think I was also asked about new treatment approaches, and I know we will talk about clinical trials also. Basically, as mentioned, if a patient comes into my office with a high-risk globular cancer, I'm very disinclined towards relying on chemotherapy. I'm much more highly inclined in looking for a clinical trial that's going to incorporate a combination, in other words, an endocrine therapy, as well as a, a, a novel therapeutic that is going to help to um, prevent resistance to that endocrine therapy. And so, you know, certainly we can look at transcriptional regulators uh, such as FOXA1 and something called RUNX1. We look at, the, as I mentioned, the TI3 kinase pathway. We also, as mentioned earlier, these patients at the, at the cancer cell level can, can have a CDH1 mutation, and there is a medicine called crizotinib, C-R-I-Z-O-T-I-N-I-B, that um, at least one study is looking at combination with an endocrine therapy, fulvestron, looking to see if we can help to undermine resistance uh, by, by using this combination. There are other mechanisms for hormone therapy resistance, such as, you know, amplification of a gene called FGFR1, and, and there are inhibitors for that that um, we are also looking at in, 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 uh, through the use of clinical trials. We're also looking at lobular cancers from an immune therapy standpoint. And, you know, one thing we've noticed, and again, these are tumors that behave different than invasive ductal carcinomas, infiltrating lymphocytes, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, and those are the immune cancer cells that help, or the immune cells that help to fight cancer. When we see these increase within a lobular cancer, that often, that often suggests that this is a more aggressive cancer. And that is an opposite to what we see in invasive ductal cancers. So, um, we've also, through um, recent trials, have, or re rather recent investigation, have realized that uh, there are many immune cells that are involved in the response to an invasive lobular cancer. So we are looking at investigational immune therapies also. Again, these are cancers that tend not to respond all that well to conventional chemotherapy. So uh, if for a patient who presents with early stage, high-risk classic lobular cancer, or even a pleomorphic variant, I look for a, uh, a, a trial that will help to uh, uh, basically lower the risk of that cancer coming back 
that will typically involve combination with a novel therapeutic. So I was asked about, you know, controlling pain and symptoms. I think that um, really these classic lobular, these lobular cancers are managed much in the same way as ductal cancers with regard to supportive care, supportive medicine. As mentioned in the metastatic setting, uh, we do see a propensity for these cancers to recur in the lining around the abdomen and, and which can cause a fluid accumulation called ascites, uh, as well as it can uh, recur within the meninges. And so that, um, that does necessitate intervention. Uh, for instance, I have uh, multiple patients that have um, presented with advanced lobular cancer that do require periodic removal of fluid from the abdominal cavity. Um, and sometimes even we place a drain in some, some circumstances. Um, but uh, that uh, is uh, often an intervention we need to pursue. Uh, I think, you know, for the most part, we manage pain in the same way that we manage um, pain and discomfort uh, with regard to any breast cancer variant. And it just often has to do with where the cancer recurs, whether it's in the bone whether it's uh, in the lung causing a cough or some other discomfort, uh, where we find a, uh, an opportunity to use directed radiation, we will use that. And we, of course, often uh, rely upon our um, pain specialty groups in order to help manage, uh, you know, generalized pain as we try to get the patient on the effective uh, systemic therapy. So um, I'm happy to answer additional questions, too. I don't, I actually lost, I don't know where we're at with time. Yes. Um, well, thank yes, you. We're now thank, thank you very yeah. much, Dr. Smith. Um, just an outstanding presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A, so thank you. Thank you so much. And just an outstanding presentation, very stellar. And our next speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein. Dr. Hussein is assistant professor of medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University, adjunct assistant professor, Department of Breast Medical Oncology, MD Anderson Cancer Center, co-director of the Janet Knowles Breast Cancer Program. Director of Breast Cancer Clinical Trials, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. And Dr. Um, Hussein will be addressing general updates on clinical trials, how clinical research increases your treatment options, um, guidelines for preparing for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. Um, and I really have to say I enjoyed listening to the presentation from both of my colleagues. Um, that was very, very comprehensive. So building up on that, really, as we heard from um, my colleagues, how invasive lobular cancer is increasingly recognized as its own distinct subtype of breast cancer, uh, and that is to separate it from the more common invasive ductal cancer in its biology, in its clinical behavior. There's difference in mutations, difference in the molecular signatures and the appearance on imaging studies, difference in its response to therapy, and also the pattern that it likes to come back or to spread with. So now nearly all invasive lobular cancers uh, lack this protein called E-cadherin. Uh, this results in a number of consequences that have to do with the gene translocation, activation of certain signaling pathways, and increased prevalence of certain mutations because of this um, lack of protein. 
And from the time that the patient presents with invasive lobular cancer, we face a few challenges, really. There is some delay that happens in the time of diagnosing the cancer and some challenges in doing an accurate clinical staging. And I think that could all be attributed to how unclear or hidden they might look on breast imaging studies. Um, so the imaging studies that we normally would use for the breast, like the mammogram or the breast ultrasound, and now we use almost always for those patients breast MRI to increase sensitivity, still do not see the full picture. So they do have reduced sensitivity to detect the extent of disease in the breast or the invasive lobular cancer type. And that could result in patients with um, invasive lobular cancer, or I'm going to refer to it as ILC, being diagnosed at a later stage. And sometimes the disease extent uh, often being underestimated by the imaging studies when we are trying to plan for surgery. So quite some, a good number of times we've been really surprised by the final pathology after we thought there's only little disease on the breast MRI. Now, this in the addition to the diffuse growth pattern seen in the IOC or invasive lobular cancer, it leads to a higher rate for positive margins at the time of surgery, so more need for margin re-excision. And sometimes we have to proceed with something called completion mastectomy, where they remove the entire breast. Uh, there is more need sometimes for axillary lymph node dissection compared to the more common type of breast cancer, the invasive ductal cancer. In the metastatic setting, the invasive lobular cancer has its own unique pattern of where it likes to spread to. So it likes to go to different parts of the gastrointestinal tract. And as mentioned previously, it likes to go to the outside lining of the intestines, a place called the peritoneum, and the outside lining also of the lungs, a place called pleura. The metastatic lobular cancer is often radiographically occult or hidden and that could result in um, delays in diagnosis of cancer recurrence and making the response assessment also challenging. Now, I'm giving everybody this little bit of intro to let you know that even with all of those differences in the molecular drivers and the clinical presentation differences between the invasive lobular and the invasive ductal carcinoma, the current guidelines or paradigms for the breast cancer treatment do not take histologic differences into account. And largely based on some historic beliefs that the invasive lobular cancer required no special therapeutic strategy. But as we start to appreciate the differences, I think this would allow us to tailor the treatment uh, driven by the tumor biology and hopefully improve the overall uh, outcome. So now we do have the Lobular Breast Cancer Alliance, which is the first national advocacy organization with a focus on advancing research in invasive lobular cancer, reflecting this growing need for the invasive lobular uh, cancer-specific research studies. So touching on the concept of clinical trials, now those clinical trials are conducted in a series of steps called phases, and I'm just going to go through the different phases real quick. So phase one trials, and in this phase, researchers test a drug or a treatment in a small group of people. Normally, it's um, below 100 subjects for the first time. And the purpose of this step is to determine how safe um, 
this drug is and to identify the side effects. The phase two trial is when this new drug or treatment is given to a larger group of people, so let's say, for example, 100 to 300 people, to determine its effectiveness and to further study its safety. Moving on to phase three, where this new drug or treatment is given to a larger, even larger group of people, we're talking maybe thousands, maybe a thousand, 3,000 patients, and that is to confirm its effectiveness and monitor the side effects closely and compare it with the standard of care or other similar treatments. And this enables us to collect the information that will allow this new drug or treatment to be used safely. Then we have stage four, which is after a drug is approved by the FDA and is made available to the public. The researchers continue to track its safety in the general population, looking for more information uh, about a drug or treatment's benefit and the optimal way of using that. I'm going to um, skip that part and I'll move on to some clinical trials first uh, about the invasive lobular carcinoma. Uh, so really, there are currently active clinical trials for patients with uh, invasive lobular cancer or also we can refer to them as e-cadherin deficient tumors. Um, and to make it very simple, I think there are trials looking at early stage and trials looking at metastatic or late stage. So for the early stage trials, I chose a few trials. Uh, one of them is looking at uh, therapeutics in the neoadjuvant or the preoperative setting. The trial's name is Rosalind, and uh, this is a trial exploring the role of the inhibition of the tyrosine kinase ROS1 that Dr. Wade spoke about before. Um, and this trial is designed to test the neoadjuvant use of the ROS1 inhibitor Intractinib in combination with endocrine therapy in the early stage invasive lobular cancer. And their endpoint here, they're trying to measure the amount of residual disease burden after surgery. Also, we touched before about how the aromatase inhibitors seem to give us a lot more benefit than tamoxifen in the invasive lobular cancer. So there was a window trial. It's um, from the Translational Breast Cancer Research Consortium and this is a trial also in the preoperative setting, and it's enrolling postmenopausal women with early-stage invasive lobular cancer, and it's randomizing those women to either receiving tamoxifen, anastrozole, which is one of the aromatase inhibitors, or fulvestrant for 21 days preoperatively, and they're measuring a marker called the KI67, which is a proliferation index that should normally mirror how much the treatment is effective by how much it starts to go down in number. The CDK46 inhibitors are very active drugs that have shown a great benefit in the metastatic setting by improving the something called progression-free survival, which is the length of time that patients live without the disease progressing, um, and also the overall survival. But also recently, it has been very, very helpful in the early-stage high-risk hormone receptor-positive setting. So there is this trial, the PILOPS, study, which is a prospective randomized trial for the early stage patients with hormone receptor positive invasive lobular cancer that is testing the combination of tamoxifen or letrozole to one of the CDK46 inhibitors, um, particularly its palpocyclic. And basically, it's looking to better understand how the invasive lobular cancer might respond differently to these therapies. Now, this trial is not open for accrual. 
Um, moving on to the metastatic setting, I'm going to start by the gelato trial. The gelato trial is an interesting one that's exploring the, the benefit of using immune checkpoint inhibitors. As Dr. Wade also mentioned, you know, this is a cancer that we don't think about, about it being sensitive to chemotherapy. Um, but recently, they've identified this subset of invasive lobular cancer uh, that is immune-related, and it is suggesting the possibility of responders to immune activation within the invasive lobular cancer. So basically, they are treating those patients with um, immunotherapy, an agent called atezolizumab. The use of the ROS1 inhibitor uh, or the ROS proto-oncogene, which is a protein-coding gene, is also looked at in the metastatic setting. So there is an early-stage uh, trial called the ROLO trial that is looking for the oral ROS inhibitor called crizotinib, and it's combining that with some form of hormonal therapy called sylvestrant. And that is used for metastatic E-cadherin negative tumors. So that could be either invasive lobular carcinoma of the breast or the previously mentioned diffuse gastric cancer. Uh, the last one I'm going to talk about is a summit trial, and this is a trial that is looking at the HER2 activating mutation. This is a very interesting uh, part here. So they looked at the invasive lobular cancer, and it seems to have a lot more of those HER2 activating mutations compared to the invasive ductal cancer, but it seems to even be more prevalent in a subtype of the lobular cancer called the pleomorphic lobular cancer. And in this trial, they're using one of the anti-HER2 therapies called neratinib in combination with hormonal therapies uh, in the form of fulvestrant and trastuzumab and comparing that to the hormonal therapy without the use of neratinib. So I realize that we're going over time, but really there is a lot of interesting work that is happening, uh, preclinical and clinical work in the direction of research for the um, luminal, or sorry, the uh, invasive lobular cancer, and there's identification of certain pathways like the PI3K and the mTOR pathway that seem to be very relevant with this disease. Uh, there's also advances in the use of some imaging studies. Um, a very quick example is a, a PET scan that is called Teriana PET that seems to be a lot more sensitive in uh, detecting the spread of the ER-positive and the lobular cancer compared to the regular PET scan. Um, the telemedicine definitely is a very important part of our lives, and almost everybody on this call is well aware of its, of its role and its benefit in really helping us during the time of the pandemic, but it lingered on with us, and it's extremely helpful in clinic. Um, I by no means could say that it's a replacement for the in-person visits, but I think it's a nice complement to make things easier for patients and also to fill in some of the gaps that do not necessitate seeing our patients in person. So I usually try to alternate visits if possible. And we uh, agree, me and my patients, on what is an appropriate visit to have by telemedicine and what is an appropriate visit that has to be in person. Um, doing a good clinical exam and seeing our patients face-to-face -face and being able to talk to them is something that is extremely valuable. And um, um, sometimes we have quick results that we need to discuss with patients, 
that could very efficiently and safely be discussed over the phone or uh, by a video call. Uh, so I, I always tell my patients a good um, advice is to write down all your questions maybe in the few days or the week before the visit so that we can go over everything because in the few minutes that we have those, um, those visits uh, over the computer, things could be missed. Uh, it also allows us sometimes to have family members or patient advocates in the call, and um, that really could be a very, very good way of communication. Um, I will stop here, and I will um, turn this back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. Very comprehensive, very stellar, very comprehensive issue to discussion of clinical trials. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. And so I'm going to ask Rob if he would explain to everybody how to go on to the Q&A, and we're going to move on to the Q&A now. Certainly. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. At this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, so we have quite a few questions here, so let me just um, – um, so there's a question for um, Dr. Smith. Is lobular breast cancer more aggressive than invasive ductal cancer carcinoma and HER2 positive breast cancer? More difficult to find and diagnose than the above two mentioned. So, yes, very good question. Uh, I will say that, you know, from, from what we know, we actually think that classic lobular, which, again, is the majority of lobular, invasive lobular cancer, is probably somewhat less aggressive, at least in the short term. Uh, I think um, certainly the pleomorphic variant we feel to be as aggressive as other what we call luminal B or, you know, aggressive ductal carcinomas. So it depends on the lobular, but the majority we see, the classic lobular, tends to be maybe somewhat less aggressive at this point, we believe. Nevertheless, the, the standard of care in terms of intervention, surgery, um, additional therapy remains very similar to ductal carcinoma or ductal cancer. Another question for you, um, uh, Dr. Smith. Does the size of your original tumor determine whether or not your risk at, for recurrence, for a recurrence? It, it does, does yes. The so size... Yes, correct. Size of, of tumor is an independent risk factor for recurrence, so that does factor into our, our decision-making with regard to additional therapy. And for Dr. Shatsky, um, so is germline testing looking at inherited genes and next-generation testing is looking at tumor genetics? Is this correct understanding? Uh, yeah, so germline testing is looking at inherited genes that predispose someone to getting cancer. And um, what, we, what we would call like tumor-specific testing, which is done by next-generation sequencing, you know, some common companies that do this are Foundation Medicine, um, uh, Tempest, Keras, and then some institutions have their own test in-house. That is... Um, specifically for advanced metastatic disease that looks like looks at tumor mutations, mutations that are specific to that one person's cancer that are not inherited necessarily, that have um, targets that you can potentially um, give medication specifically for that mutation. 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, question for Dr. Smith. Given the, that lobular cancer is hard to detect because of its diffuse growth pattern, does that mean it is similarly hard to detect if it spreads to other parts of the body? If so, what is the best way to monitor potential spread? And that's a great question. Um, and and it, it actually is. It, it can be very difficult to monitor it during the rest of the body. Um, you know, it, it tends to have, you know, a low mutation burden. It tends to have a low proliferation, which what that means is these cancers, they, they, they tend to be slow growing. They tend to be more insidious. They tend not to leave, you know, um, radiographically identifiable, um, you know, uh, imaging results. So, so, so often, as I mentioned, this lobular cancer can recur in the abdominal cavity, and that can be very difficult to see on a CT scan. And sometimes the only way um, I and others can monitor how a patient is, for instance, responding in the advanced cancer setting is by, um, you know, how often we need to remove the fluid from their abdomen. So um, it, it, I think for different reasons, um, it, is, it is still more difficult to, to see on imaging um, and so uh, that does present a challenge to us. Thank you. Um, so a question for Dr. Um, uh, oh, I guess for Dr. Shatsky to start, what if you are ER and her too low? Any different treatments? Uh, yeah. So, um so ER low, I mean, usually that means ER less than 10%. Um, and so that technically is usually treated more as triple negative breast cancer. Uh, HER2 low is, is, is something that we haven't really mentioned today, and that applies to both um, uh, ductal and lobular breast cancers. But what that means is that your HER2 um, immunohistochemistry staining on your pathology report, usually of a metastatic site, is one plus or two plus, not three plus and not zero. Um, and so this only really applies to patients with advanced metastatic or stage four disease. But what it means is that you are eligible for a category of drugs that target HER2 low disease, specifically the drug that's FDA approved called inher 2 um, there are also clinical trials of other drugs that target patients who have HER2 low disease. So in the curative intent setting of stage one through three lobular breast cancer, this is not necessarily relevant because we're, we don't change treatment whether you have HER2 one plus or two plus if your fish testing is negative for HER2 and, or if you're HER2 zero. But in the advanced metastatic setting of stage four disease, it means that you would be eligible for the drug in HER2 or other clinical trial drugs that um, uh, would target HER2 low disease. Excellent, thank you. So this is Dr. Um, Smith. How effective are aromatase inhibitors? Exemestane, 25 milligram, in a biopsy that showed LCIS cells but no breast cancer. Should you take um, curcumin supplements if on aromatase inhibitor used turmeric powder for cooking? Could you comment on that, um, Dr. Smith? Um, yeah. So uh, yeah. So basically, again, if we're talking about LCIS, we're really talking about 
preventative, a preventative um, intervention. Uh, taking exemestane, even though the data um, is more um, relevant to a different aromatase inhibitor, anastrozole in this setting, uh, it still has been shown to decrease the risk of developing a breast cancer by up to a, you know, by up to 30% or more over the over the ensuing 10 plus years. Uh, so for that reason, um, for patients with LCIS, I have that discussion with them. And if uh, if I feel that they're likely to tolerate it and not have problems on this, you know, medication, um, then I would recommend it. And that's just kind of independent of, of anything else they might be taking. Um, but, uh, yes, probably uh, for, for patients who are good candidates, we do use this medicine. And what about the curcumin supplements and the generic powder? It's not something I recommend. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that is, um, you know, it has achieved a level of validation where we, we recommend it. Um, so I would say um, really uh, I would I would adhere to kind of what, what we have, you know, data behind in terms of uh, validation, prospective validation. And could it interact with the treatment that we do have validation for? Is that the issue here too? Is that – I'm not aware of, of – of interaction drug drug or you know drug substance mm-hmm. interaction okay. with the aromatase inhibitor okay. right okay. for dr um, Hussein any trials in near future for early stage to prevent recurrence of lobular breast cancer yeah so I'm not aware of early stage trials particularly to the invasive lobular cancer but there are um, ongoing trials, and we do have good data from other trials that um, have given us um, recommendations for therapeutics used after a curative treatment for early-stage hormone receptor-positive breast cancer uh, to use medications, um, and this belongs mainly to the category of the CDK4-6 inhibitors uh, to decrease the chances of recurrence in the future. Uh, particularly uh, two agents. The first one that has been uh, FDA-approved is abemacyclib, based on the results of the monarchy trials. And uh, another trial that just gave us some uh, positive, early positive results, uh, actually, I believe, uh, yesterday, um, and uh, that was the Natalie trial for the, um, uh, the ribocyclib, which is one of the CDK4-6 inhibitors. Um, other than that, uh, doing a or proceeding with a good endocrine-based therapy in the adjuvant setting or post-operatively, uh, whether it is with an aromatase inhibitor or aromatase inhibitor with other medications that suppress the ovaries called ovarian function suppression medications um, or tamoxifen, those are usually the main um, cornerstones for decreasing chances of recurrence in the future. And you could provide the audience with um, where to go to get updated information um, on clinical trials. Is there a website? Absolutely. I think the best resource is clinicaltrials.gov. So the clinicaltrials.gov, C-L-I-N-I-C-A-L-T-R-I-A-L-S dot G-O-V is usually the best resource uh, to obtain recommendations regarding that. Uh, the other the other um, place also uh, that I mentioned is 
the Lobular Breast Cancer Alliance. I think that's a good place to find um, more information regarding what's going on in the world of um, lobular breast cancer. Excellent. And we'll actually, um, at the end of today's program, you'll be getting a survey monkey. Well, not just at the end of today, but probably in a couple of days, you'll get a survey monkey evaluation from us. And in that evaluation, we'll include all the resources we provided, like websites or any information that we think would be of help to you. So um, we'll include this as well. I actually want to thank um, both our participants and our speakers. Um, it's been a, a remarkable call. It's the first time we've done a program on lobular breast cancer, and um, it is, will not be the last time we'll do it, that's for sure, because there is really um, just so much to cover, and actually um, our speakers did a phenomenal job in covering those topics. Um, and um, so um, I just uh, want to thank you all so much for um, both, um, for all of you as presenters. And, um, and I do want to say a few words just about um, resources for you, and I actually want to say a few words about um, Cancer Care Services. So um, um, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and we provide uh, services to people who are living with all types of cancers, um, and that um, we have both free programs and services. And what are those? So people often call our hope line um, in the U.S., 1-800-813-4673, and we'll speak with one of our oncology social workers. And our oncology social worker will address your concerns and, and questions that you may have. We do offer financial assistance and co-payment assistance. Um, we do offer um, support groups on many different types of cancers and, and on many different circumstances, both on different types of breast cancers and also on different types of um, uh, for different roles that people may have, caregivers, partners, friends, um, relatives, uh, patient groups as well. Um, and we also offer uh, um, th these workshops and we offer a number of publications as well. So, um, and you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. But most importantly, as we are um, about to conclude the program today, I would not want any of you to feel you're alone in coping with cancer. Um, I want you to now know that you're part of the community of support and we're here to help you. And we're here to provide just a host of services to you. And um, so I know that it's tempting to feel alone um, very often, but to some extent we don't want you to feel alone. We want you to know that you're part of the community of support and that, uh, and that um, your healthcare team, I would start with your healthcare team. Um, so the questions you ask today or you have a question yet to ask, please take it back to your healthcare team. Also, for those of you who also um, want to contact Cancer Care, you can do that. Um, and um, we will also give you information about the Lobular Cancer Alliance that was mentioned today in today's program and cancer.gov as well. But we want you to know that you're not alone, that we're all here to help you. You're, it's starting with your healthcare team, of course. So um, with the information you've learned today, please go back to your healthcare team. They know you the best. Ask your questions of them. And ask them as many times until you get the answers you need or seek a second opinion. That's another possibility you can do as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.